The Chronic Illness Therapist podcast is meant to be a place where people with chronic illnesses can come to feel heard, seen, and safe while listening to mental health therapists and other medical professionals talk about the realities of treating difficult conditions. This might be a new concept for you, one in which you never have to worry about someone inferring that it's all in your head. We dive deep into the human side of treating complex medical conditions and help you find professionals that leave you feeling hopeful for the future. I hope you love what you learn here, and please consider leaving a review or sharing this podcast with someone you love. This podcast is meant for educational purposes only. For specific questions related to your unique circumstances, please contact a licensed medical professional in your state of residence. Dr. Daniel Cameron is a nationally recognized leader for his expertise in the diagnosis and treatment of Lyme disease and other tick-borne illnesses. For more than 34 years, he's been treating adolescents and adults suffering from Lyme disease. I was particularly interested in interviewing Dr. Cameron because I myself have had Lyme disease in the past. Who knows if I still have it or not? I certainly still have lots of different symptoms that Um, are associated with something like chronic Lyme, and chronic Lyme is highly controversial, which we'll talk about in the interview. Unfortunately, there's no clear-cut answers, which is how I feel it's going now with long COVID and other fatigue kind of illnesses, Um, chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia. You know, we have these names for what's happening happening in our body, but we don't really have a whole lot of answers. So Dr. Cameron um, has been working with patients with Lyme for three decades, and I hope that this interview is as exciting for you as it was for me to conduct. I would love to start a little bit by you telling, kind of just telling us a little bit about, you know, your practice and who you are and all that fun stuff. Okay. Well, my name is Dr. Daniel Cameron, and uh, I've been around the block. I started practice uh, 1987, so it's hard to believe it's 36 years. So, you know, that wasn't my original plan. I started out at the University of Minnesota. Well, I started out on a farm, then the University of Minnesota, got excited about geriatrics, spent the next 10 years getting trained, uh, did my residency, and my first job was in geriatrics. And then as soon as I got into practice, I realized that all the things that challenged me in geriatrics challenged me with Lyme, and it was all ages. So, you know, that's all the psychological issues, the social issues, behavioral issues, the being misunderstood uh, as in geriatrics, being uh, chronic in geriatrics, uh, all of the same challenges, all the same frustrations that the patients had. Uh, I thought that's me. That's my career. That's true. There's so much that goes hand in hand with geriatric memory loss and fatigue and just losing abilities that you used to have before. What specifically got you into Lyme in particular? Was there something that piqued your interest personally or just professionally? Well, I I had uh, three patients that in that first year that, you know, I cut my teeth on you know, they were learning, I was learning, and I was net, networking with whatever doctor I could find. There weren't many, uh, also with the community. Um, and there wasn't much written, but, uh, you know, since I was an epidemiologist, I could read the articles myself. I didn't have to wait for the CDC. And um, so already I was getting to know uh, neurologic issues. And three years later, you know, everything that I had been seeing got written about by uh, Dr. Lajigian, uh, even Steer, who was credited with the, writing the first papers on Lyme was in it, where they cry, described chronic neurologic Lyme, same issues I was seeing. They were talking about you know, brain fog, fatigue, lightheadedness, dizziness. Uh, they had 
Some people have been sick up to uh, 14 years. They had uh, been failing treatment, but two thirds uh, improved. Some of them were relapsing. Some they weren't sure if there was a persistent infection. So every issue you can imagine, instead of only me seeing it, it was in that first paper in the New England Journal of Medicine. And I thought, aha, that should be a piece of cake. We should be able to uh, work together on uh, trying to solve the chronic neurologic part of it. Didn't work out quite as smooth as I would like. Yeah, I'm curious um, if you can talk more about that, the chronic part okay. of Lyme and, and even why some people don't believe in it and what the controversy controversy is like there. Well, the first investigators had focused in on a rash. Uh, in fact, even the first sign was a swollen knee. So that's why everybody thinks it must be just a swollen knee. Then a few of them had a tick bite, a few of them a rash. So it took a while for them to figure out that it actually was something from the tick in the tick that led to a rash, led to the swollen knee, led to Bell's palsy. And so life was pretty simple at that point. They even discovered there was a spirochete in the tick and wrote the first paper in 82. We're not talking about that long ago. So five years later, I'm busy seeing patients who are chronically ill. And the way I see it is that over time is the neurotransmitters in somebody gets active, their immune system gets active. So they get kind of like a fight or flight, a, an adrenaline type issue that never stops. So it's like having a fight or flight every day. So that means they're tired and wired. They can't sleep. There's... Um, so much going on, every mood button turns up. So they can have a wave of irritability, anger, uh, rage, uh, anxiety, OCD type stuff. Uh, the sensory systems turned up. So they have often sensitive to light, to sound, to heat, to cold. With all that going on, of course, they can't concentrate too well. Although they officially call it processing, you know, you know, people can fool everybody by, you know, they can get it, but they have to work hard to process the facts, process the words, process what they talk. And then there's something called the autonomic nervous system, which handles automatic things like get up or lie down. So sometimes it's bad, they call it POTS. But some people just don't have it quite that bad, but it still messes them up. That automatic thing called an autonomic controls the stomach. Their stomach can be off. Um, remember I said the sensory is off, so sometimes they're tingling in their hands and feet. Uh, so they can have joint pain too, but not everybody gets the joint pain or the back or the neck pain. But uh, pain can be dramatic in some and the least of their problem in others. And so that was described so clearly in the New England Journal of Medicine. I thought, aha, if I'm seeing it and they're seeing it, then uh, doctors are going to pivot from acute to chronic, or in other words, both. But that pivot didn't take place. I'm still there, but that the, the authors of New England Journal of Medicine did not pivot to um, very well. In fact, yeah. uh, some of them got together, wrote a guideline saying that uh, there was no such thing as chronic Lyme, or at least it didn't exist as an entity. And they say anybody who thinks they have Lyme, it's nothing more than, quote, aches and pains of daily living. So that came almost like a tribe. You know, that was the answer all the time. Nope, it doesn't exist. No, it's nothing anyway. And so years were lost by doctors coming up with that approach. And that uh, really was rather destructive to trust with doctors. It's also frustrating because if a patient saw them, they weren't getting very far. If they didn't come in with a rash uh, at the time, it could become quite difficult to find a doctor that uh, understood the chronic parts of Lyme. Yeah, <clears throat> that makes perfect sense. I'm curious if you know why they never pivoted. Was there something, yeah, Was do you have any insight into that? No, there, I don't think it was clear, you know, so much of it, in medicine depends on what we call thought leaders. You know, we, you know, as a patient, we read, uh, I read and uh, listen to patients, work with patients, get to know it pretty well. 
but medicine's often waits for a thought leader, some leader to say, hey, what to do? So they're kind of got stuck on the first few uh, doctors. They haven't moved much. Nobody's given the go ahead to, to treat. The second thing is probably Lyme disease patients are quite sick. So if you have a busy practice, if they're sick and they're coming in, uh, in fact, they're so sick, so tired, so wired with so many mood issues and other issues that doesn't fit in very well with your HMO practice where you got 10 minutes to work that thing out. Now I find that I can make it work out if I you know, come up with the systems to, to control it, um, you know, the interview and to work with the interview and accept that they're sick and start out a strategy. And probably um, uh, the third is that, um, that over time is that they made some poor decisions on calling it psych or calling a fibromyalgia, chronic, chronic fatigue. They're calling things after COVID, long COVID. So that when you make mistakes and start labeling things, you get caught up in um, frustrations of doctors that they're, they're labeling things, they're calling things. You're criticized as doctors if you end up questioning the system. And so I get beat up, others get beat up, and who wants to get beat up? So they just say, nope, it's not a problem. And you got to work this out with a psychiatrist or work it out with somebody else. But uh, I've been told it's not a problem. Yeah, well, I think there's plenty of living proof to, to, to dispute that. I'm curious, how has testing changed since you first started in this field? Well, the Lyme tests haven't really changed much of anything. You know, there was something called a two-tier where they had a positive ELISA which is against one protein. Then you had a Western blot that was very hard to um, meet. You know, they made it really hard to meet because they were hoping to do the vaccine and get a nice clean test that could prove you had Lyme or prove you had vaccine uh, issues. But you know that was 1994, but they haven't changed that two-tier test since 1994. We're already uh, years later, almost three decades later, and we still don't have a better test for the Lyme. So some of the labs, like uh, Igenics lab, said, well, how about two bands, maybe two out of 10? They were actually at the 1994 Dearborn meeting and proposed the two bands, but nobody's been budging on, on that Igenics criteria that was proposed. Nobody's uh, come up with too much in, in a way of a better, better Western blot. They've been trying to come up with like C6 peptide, uh, some other tests to try it at least get a test as good as a, the two-tier test, but if the two-tier is not very good, just matching it leaves you with uh, not so good a test. And then they keep discovering new things in a tick. So they found Babesia as a parasites in there, the anaplasmosis, uh, Ehrlichia. Even Bartonella is complicated because it's seen in cats, or at least on mites on cats. Uh, but since it keeps showing up on testing, it it looks as if that's a, a far part of it. And so it's a, there's all kinds of fighting among doctors over which labs the lab you should go to, what criteria you should use. Uh, and then there's some newer labs that are coming along or trying to come up with something. Uh, and, uh, you know, I always find that, you know, there's always going to be false positives, false negative, And no matter what you do, I try not to get caught, caught up and on it's got to be a positive or every positive is true. I, I, at some point, the patients, the counts, their response to treatment counts is that I don't like to kind of put all my eggs on the Lyme test anyway. You know, eventually, some doctors kind of look that way and thinking, oh, that test is... I don't want that test. And then they forget that you're there in a room with the illness that you've got to use some uh, judgment on. That makes sense. How do you differentiate when it comes to things that are really hard to differentiate between? Like, for example, even Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, I work with a lot of folks yeah. with EDS um, and there's so much overlap with with all of these, and you mentioned fibromyalgia and, and some of these other kind of syndromes. I'm just curious, yeah, how do you differentiate? 
Well, how I approach it is the immune system is active. That whether it's uh, the traditional things like rheumatoid arthritis, uh, lupus, uh, long COVID after COVID, you know, Epstein-Barr syndrome, uh, with the, which they now think is more just a chronic fatigue, all of these EDS are possible. So I might talk about Lyme disease quite a bit because I, I've been working in the field, write about it, write guidelines, uh, part of ILADS as president. But in actual practice, I end up having to have a variety of doctors involved to try to look at different diagnoses, especially the neurologic, rheumatologic diseases. Those are, I want to make sure I don't miss any of those. I, um, you know, I might, you know, if I can't tell the difference between EDS, uh, chronic fatigue, fibromyalgia, and long COVID, I might take the Lyme disease part and see if that's a part of the illness. But I, I also inform my patients that they can meet more than one criteria. It's just you got to pick something. And the other thing is that ticks are hungry. So if you have fibromyalgia or EDS, they might take a meal anyway and leave behind something. So sometimes I have people with dual diagnosis. You know, they're pretty comfortable with their EDS or comfortable with the fibromyalgia. They don't want to question the fibromyalgia, um, but they get bit. Now, I have had some surprises when somebody's convinced they have fibromyalgia. I treat them for a Lyme and then they get better. And so I, it's, uh, you know, because they were resistant to ever giving up on the diagnosis of fibromyalgia because they're kind of grown used to it. They know it pretty well. They understand it. They can adapt to it. And then if I treat them for Lyme, all of a sudden their issues disappear. And so that there are people where they change categories that I see. But I always have to do follow-up visits because just because I might give Lyme a, a chance is that during the follow-up visits where I'm addressing, could there be another diagnosis that I'm overlooking, another, another concurrent diagnosis, um, or that it changed. So I just try not to have people even buy into Lyme as the only answer. You know, time and maybe specialists will help. And that, that seems to be a, a more organized approach rather than a one, one and done visit. That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Um, when it comes to treatments, you you utilize um, antibiotics, right? Yeah, well, I often end up with people who are relatively new, or they may have been sick for years and years, but they they haven't exhausted every antibiotic option. So, you know, there, there are some people who have failed everything and rely only on alternative medicine, uh, or they rely just on symptom management, they rely on some other diagnosis. But, but I find when I tease through a story is that there's missed opportunities for persistent infection. So I'm more of an advocate to look, if there's a possibility of persistent infection, why not try it? It's pretty common that Babesia as a parasite is overlooked or that doctors have been reluctant to use a tovaclone or they do it for 10 days. And so that's probably the most common infection that's that's overlooked in in patients um, but uh you know just because bartonella is controversial doesn't mean that there aren't some treatments for bartonella that might work you know like rifampin or bactrim sometimes there's a theories that maybe maybe there's biofilms maybe there's cysts around bodies there's a, there's there's persisters that may be causing problems so i might take it with an antibiotic to see if i can get um, some of those taken care of. But, uh, you know, I often don't get to all those things because if they get better with just retreatment or longer treatment or combination, it's, they read, they read, they read, and then it ends up, um, they get better. So do I, do I have people that uh, fail? Yes. And I have some really uh, sick people who've been sick with whatever I've done and whatever alternative medicine have done. So, you know, you're, there's certainly... Um, challenges ahead that, uh, for uh, the Lyme community. And I'm sure that most of the Lyme community reads, and they, just like I do, all the other diseases, trying to make sure they don't miss anything. 
and they yeah. read and see if there's any clues from the EDS community or the the, the chronic fatigue community. Is there are there some clues? Because uh, you know, I I've been thinking that and hoping that with the long COVID, since there's millions of people told they have it, is that maybe there'll be some uh, dollars and research in that area that might help us understand it. Right now, most of it seems to be going into more of a chronic fatigue type approach. So the money's pouring in there where I'm not sure how fruitful that's gonna be. Yeah, there's a part of me that wonders <clears throat> if you if you just take care of like your mitochondrial health and these other aspects of your body that might get diminished, um, when you have something like a, an infection that's constantly kind of barraging you, um, I just wonder: does that does that help in treatment? Does that even um, maybe even like get rid of the issue? Like the body can heal itself in the right condition, kind of thing, or is that not really? Is that well, there, there are some a couple Lyme studies where the mitochondrial changes take place, the same mitochondrial issues that are show up in, in other uh, diseases that we're talking about today. So I always tell people there's more than one path to get there. So even if I'm a, an advocate for giving Lyme a, a persistent Lyme disease a chance is that there are probably other paths. And there seems to be some people that do so well with an alternative medicine that um, that path works for some people. I mostly get involved where the alternative medicine path wasn't enough. You know, there, and there's of course some people in between where they're pretty good, but there's still something wrong. I see that type also. So I know the alternative medicine, integrative medicine or mitochondrial medicine has some value uh, for them, but I just get involved when it's not enough. Yeah, I might need to call you, Dr. Cameron. <laughs> yeah, there's always questions on every patient I have and is that what's normal, what's healthy? You know, you want to you want to get to the best level you can, but some people are two or three levels below where they want to be. And how do you get that last level? Um, so I have some of those discussions where yes, they're they're pretty sick, but not like they were before. But you know, I always think of it, they look out the rear view mirror and they don't see home anymore. They, they've certainly made progress. But they look out the front saying, well, gosh, did my mom sign me up for the 5K, 10K uh, uh, marathon or, or uh, Ironman? Like, you don't know kind of what's ahead and how to get there. And should I run? Should I jog? Should I go to alternative? Should I do, you know? But there's like, how do you get there? Is There's more than one path. That's a really good analogy. I like that. Um, and how do you know when it's time to stop treatment? You mentioned some clients have really complex cases, even within your help with alternative help, like they're just not getting better. How do you know, yeah, when it's time? Well, I have always have room in my practice because you know, I always tell people they get better. So there's a lot of turnover, you know, you know, on the internet it looks like nobody gets better, you know, but part of it is Google rewards that nobody gets better group because they have more colorful language, they have more followers, they have, so it's a, all the ones in between um, don't have the colorful language, they get better, that, plus they don't want to hear about Lyme or any other of these infections, it's the last thing they want to do is get in front of the computer and write about their stuff, so there's lots of uh, people that get better and uh, you don't never hear from them again. So it's, um, so in terms of how long, you know, so I have people that are all better in a month or two months and they can't even remember to take their medicine anymore. And I have to put them on alarm clock to try to remember because they're not sick enough to remember to take anything. And then of course the roughest ones remember everything. And then, but you know, three, four months you'd be surprised how many people are, uh, have got to their goals. And, and I used to use intravenous more, but, with the understanding of co-infections, uh, uh, with a better understanding of like Babesia is that, and there, there are some pill approaches that do so well. So I don't go to intravenous uh, very often anymore, uh, which is, makes it of course a lot easier if they can get to their goals using their prescription plan. 
because lots of prescription plans work quite well. You know, they don't challenge you. They, they, they might challenge on the IV, but they don't really challenge on the, the pills. And then this GoodRx came along that for those who don't have good insurance or have $2,000 deductibles, the GoodRx makes it the price affordable on almost all of these uh, drugs that I'm talking about today. That's great. Yeah, that's a really, I think, underutilized resource, GoodRx. Um, but yeah, for mental health too, that that can be really life-changing for a lot of people. Because yeah, I know my, my deductible is like $6,000. <laughs> yeah, in terms of cost is that since there's more than one path to get there, um, you know, even though I advocate the alternative medicine and Lyme, well, I mean, I, I mostly work on the, the persistent infection theory. Uh, be surprised that I don't actually order that many tests. Um, I usually order whatever tests I can locally, even though I know they're not so good. And I'm going to treat clinically. So if I do that, I save a lot of money on tests and and use a prescription platter if they're oral, that saves a lot because that part's covered. Even though there's more than one path, the treatment for Lyme with an antibiotic is not near as costly if you can do it with a pill. So there's a lot of people expecting to, you know, pay five grand or 20 grand and 30 grand and and they're thinking, gosh, that's all it costs, you know, to uh, so, you know, if it is a persistent infection, it's usually the cheapest way to go versus just treating the symptoms. And uh, that's from my perspective, that's just my view and my perspective is that uh, those who, you know, where it's a persistent infection uh, have it um, a cheaper way to go as long as I don't keep ordering tests and endless tests and chasing after tests and, and those kind of things. I don't like pulse therapy either. You know, some doctors have liked pulse therapy, which is they treat you know, they treat, and then they also treat uh, like once a month with a few uh, like Tindamax or things like that. So even though that works for some, I, I'd rather treat more persistently, take probiotics, eat right. The other thing I do a lots of times is instead of spending all my time on pills and supplements and everything else, I, it's so important to counsel my patients. So most of my, my visit is not supplements. It's where are you in your life? What are you doing in your life? What's, um, how are you adjusting with the, the pressure, the school issues, the parent issues, uh, all the conflicts that are out there? And how do you personally feel when you're in the depths of despair? How do you deal with, how do you like pull yourself out and up to uh, get up every day? And, and even if you start getting better, how do you process it so you don't end up with a PTSD type of uh, symptomatology? You don't end up, uh, um, with a secondary, you know, frustration, anger, and bitterness. And last, I, I, with students especially, I try to make sure that they get the school done, if possible, in any way, shape, or form, because when they get better, I want them to be able to be at least reasonably close to uh, their grade level and their, and their friends. Yeah, um, when you are working with the individual, um, you also bring the family in, right? Yeah, I, even if the parents are split, is that with adolescents and tweens, it's great to have them all in the room at the same time and get on the same team because nothing is more difficult than having um, a war in the family over the treatment. So um, often if, if I get that child involved, even tweens in discussing things, talking things um, out, that the, you know, it's a different level of conversation than you have at home. You know, everything's on the table, the fears, the worries, the frustrations uh, on, uh, on, are on the table, and it's, uh, it's helpful to start building things. The other thing happens a lot of times is the kids focus in on the, the herks or the flare-ups, and the parents are actually seeing some changes uh, in function, some changes outside, and so you get these, like, mixed messages right in the room of where they're at, and so I think that that beginning of trying to get understanding you know the parents scared because every last symptom they have kids uh, you know lost and it's been a while that they've had uh, any communication and so i've been uh, i've been devoting most of the time to that engagement you know right on the spot rather than than some uh, just hand a pill over 
I mean, every doctor does it to some degree, but I put a premium on it and uh, invest an awful lot of time in that, uh, in that part of uh, taking care of somebody with a tick-borne illness. Yeah, I'm sure that, I'm sure that increases your efficacy in helping clients. Right. And, and how to rebuild, you know, how to, you know, not only turn the corner, because otherwise it's really easy to sort of head down a path and get frustration and whether you, and, or, and sometimes it's like that, you know, the sick and tired of being sick and tired and, and being everybody frustrated in the house. Right now I've been um, uh, uh, have, having some fun with um, TikTok with, um, you know, reflecting on 36 years of experience with conflicts, with problems, where kids are, where the fears, where the frustrations are, the frustration with doctors. And so, so instead of just writing guidelines or doing all kinds of like, you know, I finished a book recently, a new book, but having fun with doing what we're talking about today is how do you explore in a, in a shorts, in a few seconds, uh, various things that I see in practice in the room with the mom and dad and the kid there or what they're experiencing when they go out and try to get care at different doctors and, and what they inside, inside personally feel. And even if nobody's in the room, how do they personally feel? And so that project I'm doing right now, I'm, I move everything from TikTok over to Instagram and YouTube shorts. But the, the main goal right now is to really dig down into um, the communications part uh, the all of the mental health parts uh, i'm not a mental health provider i'm not a psychiatrist but i can do the best i can as an internist yeah absolutely i think you know we've gone so far away from holistic you know there used to just be one general practitioner for this you know village this small town and they had an intuition about their patients about you know it wasn't an in I know this disease, I, like the back of my hand, it was, I know Mary Sue, like the back of my hand, because she's my neighbor. And yeah. I have an intuition that can help guide me with my, edu in, you know, mixed with my education as a doctor. And we just don't have that anymore. Yeah, well, it's a, it's, it's patients themselves when it, everything's so intense, it often is, or it's been for so long and intense is that they probably drive the doctor crazy because the doctor is used to, well, now they're just used to saying, oh, uh, what do you got? After about two things, they say, oh yeah, go to the infectious disease doctor, go to the rheumatologist, go to this doctor. And so that primary care doctor isn't used anymore to, to setting up a relationship. They're already triaging it as somebody else. And that, so that, then when you go there, then they're used to one part of it, one dimension as a, rheumatologists and they're not used to the fact that the illness isn't is is broad based you know and uh, so that's why the medicine medicine the way it's divided up now is not good at uh, the, the complexity of patients that are there and also the patients when they read ahead you know they, they don't remember sometimes uh, the doctors are kind of tying themselves in knots they're painting themselves in the corner the patient reads ahead, knows all the other stuff that's been discovered the past 30 years. It's that there's a kind of a setup of conflict between the patients that know a lot and the doctors are know a lot, but they paint themselves in the corner. So you get this conflict that right away within seconds that uh, are hard to resolve. That's right. Yeah. I Oh, man. I always see this meme online that's like, you know, don't confuse your um, your Google search with my like doc my doctoral degree and then the response is don't confuse your degree with like my lifelong experience with this illness yeah. um, it's true yeah it's just it's like an immediate power struggle between provider and client patient and you can't even get anywhere now well even me you know after 36 years of experience of writing guidelines writing 600 blogs um writing this latest ebook, which compiled them all. And I've been everywhere. It seems like I, I show up everywhere. But I get every day, I get patients challenging me, questioning me kind of a really intensely. Um, even to this afternoon, I had uh, somebody that traveled from California. In, and so, you know, that you could tell and they were at least articulating how 
the rage, the frustration, the fear, everything you possibly think of. And, and of course, then they're worried whether I'm the right choice, whether they're questioning yeah. me, they're not sure I know what I'm talking about, and this and that. And so it's like, even me, you think with all that stuff that I, you know, I've just come up with a pretty good list is that I get challenged on a regular basis for do I know what I'm doing? Yeah. Of course, I do the best I can, but I still know that for me to get challenged quite often, at least two or three times a day, and whether I whether I'm credible, is it shows you that how hard it is as a doctor to take them on. So how do you deal with an illness where that even experts, uh, Lyme experts, can get challenged? Yeah, yeah, it's it's a nervous system fight or flight, lack of trust. We don't we don't trust doctors like we used to. I think it used to be. And we've talked about this on the podcast a little bit, but, you know, doctors used to be kind of the, the, the all knowing, you know, they were all knowing and the doctor said, so you do. And then I think there's just been, and this is true in our mental health field too. There's been so much trauma done by helping professionals, doctors, therapists, you know, who kind of get into this, this place of power and knowingly or unknowingly abuse it. And, um, you know, treat the patient as a number or treat the patient as like, they don't know what they're talking about. And it creates this, um, this lack of trust. I think, I do think we're on this other side now where like, there's very little trust for doctors these days. And it's, I think it's swung so far on the other side. Um, it's just not making for good doctor patient relationships. Yeah, certainly. Well, you, you said it right there that if somebody has a fight or flight, in their system and they first meet a doctor you what i find the same thing is i have patients who are in the same interview same intake uh, ready to fight me or fly out the door at the same time so they're having a fight or flight experience and i'm trying to do the best i can and i and i even with all i've done i that fight or flight is right there right in front of me and so that, plus their emotions can flip through several they can i call it tsunami they could have a, a wave of uh, rage and then anxiety and then sadness and OCD and this and that. Even that first paper in 1990 at the New England Journal of Medicine, they were noticing you know, extreme anger as part of their original description. So the fact that I'm seeing it now today means that I saw it in 87. Uh, they described it in New England Journal of Medicine. And so most doctors aren't kind of used to the having a fleeting rage or fleeting anxiety, fleeting fear or brief crying for out of nowhere. And there's, you know, that they'll often go through a, a waves of experience. So that's why it's, um, how do you get that experience to be successful is, 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 a, uh, is a challenge for uh, the doctor, but it's also a challenge for the family. Yeah, because I think, you know, when when there was this inherent trust in doctors, that in and of itself calms some of that fight or flight just by having someone or something in the room that you trust. And so if if that is no longer placed with the doctor, and now you have all of these different types of information and different medical trauma experiences and, and all of the things that this, and then on top of just simply the illness itself causing this amount of rage and emotional um tumultuousness yeah that you need something and that's what I work on with clients um especially when it comes to medical trauma how do we resource your body how do we find this calm centered place not trying to convince them to trust anyone because that to me that that doesn't work you're going to come to the trust on your own through the relationship with the doctor if you just give that a chance um, you will find that the doctor's right for you or not right for you. And so we work a lot on um, bringing that fight or flight response into um, more like a, like waves. Like we want, we want to have access to our fight or flight system. We're not trying to suppress it or numb it or, or, you know, we're just trying to calm it down um, and allow it to still be there so that you can move through the world without that rage, despite the fact that there's this thing in your body causing a lot of pain. Right, I spent a fair amount of time trying to at least get them to understand it, know it, palpate it, and understand the nuances, all of the things. Because if they understand it, 
it's not a quite as scary if they understand uh, um, first of all that it occurs and why it occurs. They don't have a lot of control over it. They do have control if they eat right, take care of themselves, talk about it, but still, uh, you know, they don't always have the insight. They they know some key symptoms, but that uh, it helps. Uh, just what you're talking about is to how do you process it better? Yeah, I think that's another key piece. Just you know, having information about your illness. Um, like you said, people kind of come in knowing a lot these days, and there can be a lot of conflicting things that we <laughs> read and know. But when you finally kind of learn information in a way that makes sense to you, and it, you know, it, it feels corroborative, then you can, that alone uh, calms your nervous system too. just trusting in the information that you have, even if it's not great information, even if it's scary information, doesn't have a great outlook, just knowing that you trust the information alone calms that nervous fight or flight response. Yeah, I'm on the same page as you. It's what I see too. Yeah, I love that. One, one quick question about diet, because you mentioned it a couple of times. Do you individualize that to the person or do you kind of ascribe to one type of diet? No, I just tell people that whatever diet they pick, it should stay away from processed sweets uh, and alcohol. Um, if they eat any carbs, um, try to eat it as part of the balanced meal, because even if they eat something, they need to process it a little slower than normal because it's a junk, junk food, junk calories get processed so fast. So there's plenty of diets like gluten-free, you know, the uh, alkaline diet. There's a lot of diets, but it's as long as you keep those fundamentals going, I, I try not to micromanage the diet. You know, the, most of the providers I see tend to have a favorite diet that they do you know so i just say well that that'll work as long as you keep those principles in place and take probiotics i like that recently on tiktok there's a couple doctors i've followed that are really really claiming that probiotics don't even make it to your gut and like do nothing for you i'm really curious if you know anything about this new kind of thing that's going around and if you have thoughts on it well, the infectious disease community has always been against uh, probiotics. You know, they didn't really have much data. They just said they, they don't. You know, they, and uh, but uh, you know, the few studies have been done. Uh, you know, one was on, um, I think it was uh, certain types of diarrhea, um, which is uh, like a colitis type diarrhea. They were able to prevent quite a few of the cases of uh, diarrhea in those individuals. And that's one, uh, uh, you know, where they have the control trial, they're sick enough that they, and they have enough bowel problems, they're, they're not from antibiotics and they were able to show how clearly the probiotics uh, work. Um, you know, it's possible that they die off. We know that everything gets died off when it goes to the stomach acids, but uh, from my experiences, the probiotics are quite helpful, but, there aren't too many experiments that can say it. You know, there's also a fight over how many bacteria. So I always say, uh, whatever you pick, do like 40 billion, 60 billion. Sometimes maybe take two types. If you have two different bottles, they have different kind of bacteria, but that, you know, there's always swings in the pendulum over, over things that are unclear. So mm. I, I think that, um, it's certainly unclear that probiotics have any value if you're not sick and you're not taking antibiotics. That's a, that seems there's a fair amount of evidence they can't quite prove that they work for general health. Okay. But, but if you actually have to take antibiotics, that's where they've been able to show some benefit. Okay. I think they're probably right. If, that's probably where they're getting it from, is that there's a few articles that said it doesn't show any benefit if you're not sick. Got and there's you. others that say, well, it's it's organic, it's natural, it makes sense. I like it, it helps me, but that the sciences can't really prove it helps healthy people. That's interesting, yeah. Yeah, because right now there's such a like um, boom around like optimizing wellness. And I just, I think it's gone really, really far. Um, and I do think that there's a lot of stuff that we are doing unnecessarily where if you just provide the basics, which I, I heard you say with the diet, and I love that, <clears throat> um, your body really does know how to do the rest. 
you know, we can help it when it needs help, but maybe back off when it doesn't need so much help. Yeah, and that, right. So I think that's uh, that's why I keep some fundamentals in because a lot of people do alternative medicines anyway, even before they get Lyme. They just an endless amount of people take it for uh, for health, wellness, and nutrition. And so, or if probably a third of the population does that anyway, without being sick, is that I just try to adapt to people that take all that stuff anyway. Yeah. And, what what can I do and what role can I play? And they sh they typically stay with those things anyway, and and uh, just in case. So I just focus on on this uh, this this area. And um, just a quick note: you mentioned like the two taking two probiotics. Do you you were you saying alternate them? Well, sometimes they'll there'll be forty billion bacteria of one type, and then. 40 bacteria, 40 billion of like a, a mixture. So when somebody says, well, what's the best one? Since there, I don't see any good studies saying which is the best one, if you happen to have two bottles, then it's more of intuitive. It makes sense, you know, in case one's better than another someday, at least you, if you happen to have both bottles, why not? So, but that has nothing to do with science, it has to do with just, yeah, just a, a, a hunch that. Uh, when you're saying why not, it's like why not take them both together or why not switch them? I don't think it matters because I don't think one kills another. So it's yeah. a matter you got to remember it. So if you remember to take things twice a day, remember it. If you got time to take it twice a day, fine. But uh, you got to still remember to take it. It doesn't do you any good in the refrigerator sitting there, you know, when every time you open it. And so it doesn't just absorb through. I was got to figure out some people remember everything and every schedule and every hour and others, you know, you have to chase after them. You know, I have teenagers where they can't remember if they took it. So I have mom put out the um, pills in a cup. Yeah. So they have to get through that cup for the day. And they take the probiotic out of the refrigerator if it happens to be a refrigerator type. So the mom just has to look in and say, oh, yeah, you have two pills left. Because they're not about to have a granny pack where you have the these old packs where everything's in a plastic thing. They're lucky enough to look at that mug and they go over to the refrigerator to eat 10 times a day. So they can get, <laughs> oh yeah. And so that's that's a fairly easy for a teenager or a tween to keep track of their pills. They just their job is to get through those pills for the day. And it's not as scientific as someone older who has OCD and or OCD tendency and or compulsive tendency. They can remember every last little detail, but not everybody is gifted with OCD. I'm talking about a healthy OCD, not the kind of Yeah, sick. yeah, I will say there's a, a huge um I will say like yeah, OCD um is definitely that the clinical diagnosis is is nothing right. to be desired. Right. But, I'm talking about that, the compulsive type. Medical students are OCD, but that's OCD and somewhat healthy where they try to do right. There's a new there's a no newer diagnosis, obsessive compulsive personality disorder, which yeah. is different from OCD. And yeah, it's just, yeah. I, it's very I couldn't loosely do it, but I just tell people to at least recognize that there's different levels of checking yeah. and double checking that's healthy, not some of it's illness and some of it's just, um, but that's because I'm an internist. I'm not, uh, I, those two terms, I kind of use a little less scientific than you might. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, amazing. I. I think I, I that's all I have for questions today. Do you have anything that feels important for people to know that I haven't asked about? No, I thought you did a good job of like uh, guiding me uh, through and reflecting on my practice, reflecting on what I do because uh, you know, we all do it somewhat differently. I just got a chance to work with you and uh, and uh, ponder how I got to this spot after 36 years. So thanks for uh, your uh, forum here. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for coming on. And your practice is in New York, right? Yep. Oh, and that ebook that I was, I could mention that, that uh, yep. I, um, you know, took on when I read scientific articles, you know, I've been writing a blog about each one I write. So it got up to 600 blogs, 600 articles. And, but it's hard because when you Google, you get lost here, you go to that article, you go here and here and here. So so I took the, the most clinically relevant cases and of the 600 blogs and put them in one ebook. So 
you don't get, you can at least have one basic place where you can at least get your feet wet and it's an ebook so it's it's written and uh, where it's each article is about 110 words so i can get to the point rather quickly for those who Lyme patients that i have where you know they they can start but by the time they get past the third page they're not processing very well this one each page has its own topic and you can get to it quick so it's just uh, trying to be mindful to what Lyme patients think how their moms and dad think and uh, and so I've been, I, I put it only on the website for now. I didn't put it on Amazon. So it's, it's there. It's called An Expert's Guide to Navigating Lyme Disease uh, rather than on treatment exactly. It's a lot of treatment information, but I just want to guide people along so they can get to know it better. I love that. Yeah. And you're on um, TikTok and Instagram at Daniel Cameron MD. Is that right? Yeah, it's weird. I think it's Daniel Cameron, MD, or Dr. Daniel Cameron in different places. Okay, I'll I'll put but, it in the show notes. And then there's also I'm on YouTube Shorts because YouTube Shorts is trying to get in the action. So they are. <laughs> I post them in there also. I love that. Thank you so much for being here today. Um, yeah, I I will put all that information in the show notes. So people know how to contact you. And you work? Do you work with anyone virtually, or do you only work with people in New York? or like who can travel to your um, clinic? Well, I've been having people establish a relationship by coming in the first time. Okay. Then I do a lot of remote, a lot of it uh, for now, until the laws change. Uh, I think that I, my guess is that doctors have gotten a habit of doing telemedicine for three years, that telemedicine is going to be here to stay. As long sure, as telemedicine yeah. exists, I'm going to be using it heavily for those who are like today, the one from California had to come in. Um, but after that, I can work with them. I uh, have a lot of flexibility work with them uh, at, uh, at, at using a telemedicine format. That's great. Thank you so much, Dr. Cameron. And you're welcome. If you learned something new today, consider writing it down in your phone notes or journal and make that new neural pathway light up. Better yet, I'd love to hear from you. Send me a DM on Instagram, email me, or leave a voice memo for us to play on the next show. The way you summarize your takeaways can be the perfect little soundbite that someone else might need in order to better absorb the same lesson. Lastly, leaving a review really helps others find this podcast, so please do so if you found this episode helpful.